The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Tonight we continue just the joy and privilege of welcoming men from around our presbytery to uh, preach for us in this time of transition. And uh, tonight we have with us uh, Pastor Tom Nicholas from Reformed Presbyterian Church in Ephrata. And he's been there. Uh, he, he arrived there at RPC just before Dr. Rogers arrived here. So it's been a little more than 25 years that he's been pastoring at our sister church there in Ephrata. And we're, we're really glad to have him here tonight. As we were talking uh, before the service, Tom and I discovered that our weekends had one thing in common and one thing not in common. Uh, we both officiated a wedding yesterday, uh, but I officiated here in, in the beautiful air-conditioned sanctuary. And he was in coat and tie outside officiating yesterday. So if you imagine what yesterday is, we're glad that he's here. He made it through, uh, and he's here to bring God's word to us. Thank you, Tom. It's good to be with you tonight uh, to look into God's word together. We do pray for you uh, here as you're in a time of transition. We're also grateful that you're in such good hands uh, with uh, the staff that you have. I hope you pray for them regularly. Um, I love the setup here. The kids are going to just, you know, love this tomorrow when they're here. And we will, we have an every Wednesday kids ministry through the summer, actually eight Wednesdays. Um, But we'll be thinking of you uh, this week as you minister to 400 some kids and just for Jesus to be present in your staff and all those who teach and that he'll work in the lives of the children. Looking at one of the Beatitudes tonight, I did uh, check with Chris to see, you know, we didn't want to come and preach the same sermon someone else preached. Not that we pass them around to each other, but you know what I mean. Um, And uh, I know someone did preach on the Beatitudes, and uh, they had the courage to do all of them, and I understand why. I will be focusing just on one tonight, and that is Matthew 5, verse 8, which reads, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. If there was ever a beatitude that feels almost immediately beyond our reach, it is this beatitude. Who of us can really say that they are pure in heart? And if we can't say that, how are we ever going to see God? Because we certainly are not pure, and it's the pure who see God. So there's a chasm here, seemingly, there's a gulf that we need to understand and to bridge. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his well-known uh, commentary on the Beatitudes, says in 
his introduction to it. Anyone who realizes even something of the meaning of these words, blessed are the pure, they shall see God, can approach them only with a sense of awe and complete inadequacy, which echoes what is said in Proverbs 20, verse 9, who can say, I have kept my heart pure, I am, I am, that I am clean and without sin, which is a rhetorical question, the answer being none of us can. And I hope that we come to this verse tonight open and willing to be humbled by the Word of God and His Spirit and ready to receive God's grace. My outline is very simple. What does Jesus mean by the heart? What does Jesus mean by pure? And what does it mean to see God? First of all, what does Jesus mean by the heart? Jesus is always concerned about the heart. If you've read the Gospels, you know that. In fact, he was so concerned about the heart that the Pharisees viewed him as this abrasive nuisance who had sort of entered into their culture and was causing all of these ripples. He was threatening to them because he's always going deeper to the internal, to the heart, And it felt threatening to them because they focused so much on the external and on what is seen. Let me try to help you understand how the Pharisees felt around Jesus. It's like you go, you like to take good care of your cars, suppose. And so you go out, you wash your car, you spend the afternoon waxing that car and buffing it and detailing it, and you get it just how you want it. And so you go and you show it to your friend who happened to be coming by and, and, and you say, hey, look at my car. You know, isn't that clean? And before your friend agrees with you, he opens up the door and sees a little dirt there on the, you know, in between the doors and he finds a few pieces of trash underneath the front seat and there's crumbs between the crevices, which drives any clean car nut crazy. The trunk has some junk in it, and the engine has all kinds of grimy dirt, you know, gook on it, and there's a few gum wrappers in the back seat. And so he says to you, after all your work on the outside of that car, he says to you, well, it looks good on the inside, or on the outside, but inside it's rather filthy. How would you feel? Well, your friend's comments are annoying, and if he keeps it up, he might not be your friend. Now, that's just a car, okay? But see, Jesus does that with us, and he did that with the Pharisees time after time because he looked upon the heart. In the Bible, the heart is the center of your being, out of which everything flows. Your thoughts, your emotions, feelings, your actions and reactions. Your heart is you in the deepest and most profound sense. The Proverbs and Psalms are always saying, out of the heart flow the issues of life. And so when the gospel talks about a change in our heart, or being pure in heart, it's talking about a change at the root of you, the center of you, 
so that everything else is affected because the center is affected. Which is to say that the Christian faith or trusting Jesus and following Jesus is not just about outward behavior. Jesus said to the Pharisees time after time, and he continues to say it throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that it's possible to develop good and maybe even charitable-looking patterns of behavior where a person is supporting the church, giving to the church, doing ministry in the church, living by an upright moral code. But all those obedient patterns of living can arise out of all sorts of motives. Pride, self-righteousness, self-dependence. They can arise out of a love for self-honor, a love to be seen, Matthew chapter 6, in the right way, a need for security or the pressure to conform, even from fear. And so you see, Jesus was not just annoying to the Pharisees, he was threatening to the Pharisees because outward behavior was their currency. And that's how they stayed in power, because they were the models of outward behavior. And what Jesus was threatening was to devalue their currency by which they operated spiritually with God and say, no, 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 there's another kind of currency that we should be looking at and talking about. Notice Jesus doesn't say, you know, it would be nice if you had the good motives, but as long as you're towing the line outwardly and being a good citizen, and as long as it looks good on the outside, that's okay. No, we say that. God does not. He looks upon our hearts. Matthew eleven nineteen or eleven thirty nine, you Pharisees, Clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You wash your cars on the outside, but inside they are filthy. You foolish people, he says, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? Right here in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 Uh, Verses 21 and 27, he takes sins like murder and adultery, which the Pharisees were so glad that they had not been involved in. And he says, you're all involved in it, and you're involved in it right now. Kind of addresses them spiritually as he takes away that currency. Same thing is said in uh, Zechariah 7.5 in the Old Testament, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted or were you just eating and drinking and feasting for yourselves? You know, I think about Memorial Day. It's not a religious holiday. That's a national holiday. And I think of what it's about and those who gave up their lives uh, for our country And I just kind of wonder out loud, like, how many parents teach their kids or how many families when they get together for that picnic and barbecue, which I think is wonderful to do. It's a great thing to do on Memorial Day. We can do that because of the people who died for our country. But how many people, as they're having that picnic and doing all the Memorial Day things, actually think about what it's all about? That's what Jesus is saying. And in their worship, they were really thinking more about themselves than they were thinking about 
him. Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit aren't just interested in what's above ground, what is seen. He goes below ground to the root system, to your motives, and to your heart. So that's one implication of Jesus' teaching, that Christianity is more than the outward appearances. But it also means that the Christian faith, and I'm applying this and saying this to us, that the Christian faith is not just an intellectual assent to truthful propositions. It's easy for our faith to become a religion of the head and a religion of the intellect. Here is this system of doctrine, the Reformed faith, which we love, that really makes sense. And it seems to so accurately reflect the scriptures. And we say, I believe these truths. This is the right way to view things. And we give our mental assent to those groups of truths and say, yes, I think that's really what the Bible is saying and teaching. But if we're not careful with that, our faith can become simply a mental grasp or enjoyment of what you perceive to be the correct way to think biblically, which is, that's a good thing, but it's not enough. And when that's all it is, it's not a religion of the heart. It's just a religion that satisfies our minds. Now, don't get me wrong. Doctrine's important. We teach it. You teach it. Understanding truth, God's word, is essential for everything in our lives. It's vital. Faith seeks understanding. Peter says, add to your faith knowledge and a lot of other things. The problem, though, is when our faith becomes giving simply the mind's assent to a number of propositions. I'm a Christian because those truths make sense to me. That may be part of it, but the danger is when we knowingly or unknowingly stop there and think that that is all Christianity really is. So this beatitude um, of Jesus, um, this, this blessing here, um, he doesn't say, blessed are they that are pure in their mental assent to a system of doctrine. He doesn't say, blessed are those who are pure in external conformity. He says, God looks on the heart, and he wants your heart. He wants to go down to the root. Second thing, um, what does it mean to be pure? What does the word pure mean? What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the pure in heart? When you think of the word, what comes to your mind? What does it mean to be pure? I think most of us, we think of things like, well, I need to have pure thoughts. That's where I'm not pure. I need to stop having angry thoughts or envious thoughts judgmental thoughts or proud thoughts. I need to stop having lustful thoughts or hateful thoughts. Uh, Actually, those are all really good things for every one of us to think about, and I hope that God and his spirit convict you and me of those things. Well, that may be involved, but it's not dead center for what Jesus is saying. The first time in the scriptures that purity comes up 
is in conjunction with building the tabernacle. And God said in Exodus 40, and it's verses 9 through 12, I'm not going to read that, but he says to take the vessels and the furniture and to sprinkle it with water in order to purify it. The tabernacle had been built. Now they're dedicating everything that has built um, to its use in the tabernacle. Now, if we take our ordinary definition of what it means to be pure, it means that the vessels and the furniture of the tabernacle are never going to have lustful thoughts again. And the vessels in the tabernacle aren't going to be envious or angry or resentful. See, that is not what is meant by the word pure in the Old Testament. In the case of the tabernacle, it means that those items were never to be used for any other purpose except the Lord's work. It means they're completely set apart, wholly given over to God. In other words, you can't use the table of showbread for an evening game of ping pong or poker when it's not in use or when the bread's cleared off. And you can't use the lampstands in the tabernacle and take one home for a romantic dinner with your wife. And the laver wasn't there to be used as a bird bath or, you know, some kind of little public pool of water to have fun with your kids. There, no, there, there was no competition for the use of those vessels. They are set apart for a singular use. That's what the word pure means. Its most essential meaning, I think, is, is right here in this passage because to be pure in heart means to be unmixed, okay? Sincere, whole. You know, you think of the word integrity. And actually, behind that word is the word integer. If you remember anything from math class, and this is about all I know, is that an integer is a whole number. It's not a fraction. It's the whole number, integrity, whole. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what Paul means when he says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, Romans 12, offer yourselves your whole person as a living sacrifice to God. Do you ever wonder if maybe the reason some of us get sullen and downcast and there's a dark cloud, and I'm not saying that this explains everything, but that maybe part of the reason at the root is because you have a heart that wants to be in two different places. It's divided, and it makes you miserable in every year of your life because you have two masters or three or four and you're trying to serve them all. Our hearts are not pure. They're deceitful and they're wicked. I have a, I have a great prayer for us. Um, when the psalmist prays for purity in Psalm 8611, he prays this, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. Isn't that a wonderful prayer? 
Isn't that what we really need to be praying in our lives? Isn't that a great way to begin your day? Is this a good thing to occupy your mind as you're driving to work or as maybe you're doing some other things um, around your home? Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. That's a prayer for this week, prayer for this year, for the rest of our lives. What's the matter with your heart? You know what? You know what's the matter with your heart is that you want to serve the Lord, but there are other things over here and there that we don't want to give up, and there's competition. The apple of your eye, your treasure, and if it's not Jesus, you see, then you're not pure. One of the things I look forward to in heaven with my new resurrection body is that I will have an undivided heart in the worship of Jesus my Savior and God my Father. Um, I can't wait to be delivered from this body of death that Paul talks about in Romans 7 so that my heart is finally and at last wholly, completely, like pure gold, pure gold, nothing else in it before the Lord. Oh, how very content. Oh, how very happy. Oh, how very blessed are the pure in heart. Well, the result of that is the third thing in this verse. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The, the vision of God. We, we've looked at what he means by the heart, what it means to be pure, but what does he mean when he says that they shall see God? What is this vision of God? I'm going to mention a few things. Let me put it to you in the strongest sense, that the vision of God is the most satisfying thing that a human being can ever experience, seeing God. Now, you don't know that yet, okay? But that's what the scriptures teach. That's why Moses said, Lord, I want to see you. I want to see your face. And it's the thing that, you see, this is the thing that we were made for. This is the thing that we were built for. Adam and Eve were made to see God. They were made to have fellowship with their God. Face to face, they walked in the garden together. And when sin ended that relationship, it didn't take away the image of God in us, though it's bent and broken, okay? And so that image still wants this. There's a part of this image, consciously or unconsciously, that desires to see God. It's the only thing that you really want, but you may not be aware of. You may think you want other things, but you really want this. As Augustine said, my heart is restless. I have a God-shaped hole until it rests in you. The psalmist, Psalm 17, when I awake, I shall behold thy face in righteousness and I will be satisfied by seeing your form. 
The vision of God is the most satisfying thing a person can ever experience, and it is what we were made for. Now, there are other things that satisfy us, and there are some of the good things of creation, and they are good. Creation is good. Good music, seeing creation, mountains, valleys, oceans. In a week, I'm going to be on the shores of Lake Michigan, and I'm going to be enjoying And I'll be satisfied to a certain extent in seeing what I see. Being in love, getting a house instead of an apartment. There are things that can satisfy us at a certain level. But you see, the feeling and the excitement of those things, they always promise more than they can deliver. Why is that? Well, they are there to point to something in the hidden recesses of our heart. And that is the thing that satisfies us the most. And that is seeing God. We were made for this. And what you really want, what you're really after, it's what you're looking for. And you're trying to find it in the wrong places. Someone said this, you can never get enough of the things you don't need. You can never get enough of the things that you, know, that you do not need. Which is why Isaiah 55 says to us, why do you spend money on what is not bread? And your labor on what doesn't satisfy. Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good. He's talking here about Jesus. He's talking about the Savior, the Messiah. Eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest of meals. Give ear and come to me and hear me, that your soul may live. See, it's it's God. It's Jesus. It's, it's the vision of God that we really want, and only he can satisfy those desires, which is why Moses, of all things that he could have asked for, said, I want to see you. He knew what he was asking for as that Old Testament mediator. Some of you are saying, well, I do want to see God, but I have this big problem. I'm not pure. I'm not sure I will ever be pure in the way that God wants. So how can I ever see God? I have good news for you. Um, Part of it is that no one else in this room is pure in the way that Jesus describes. Um, How can we be pure then? Is there any good news? It's interesting in the Old Testament that it's said in several places and repeated in the New that if we were to see God, we would die. Do you ever wonder why that's true? I mean, it's not like Raiders of the Lost Ark where, you know, they open up the Ark of the Covenant and they melt. That's, you know, that's Hollywood. And maybe you think, though, that, well, God is just so bright in his majesty, I'm just, it's just going to kill me because it's so bright. But I really think that, that, that part of what's happening in that statement is that without Jesus, without Jesus, 
and his forgiveness, if you were to see God in all of his holiness and majesty, you would immediately know the depth of your sin and how awful you really are in the heart of hearts and in the core of your being. And you would be so overwhelmed with what you see in God and what you see in yourself that it would actually kill you. That's my view of what it means to see God and live. It's not just the glory and the beauty and the holiness itself. It's me in my condition seeing God that way if I see him without Jesus. So what do we do? Well, we go to God. We go to Jesus. We go to the one who is pure. Psalm 24 says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one with clean hands and a pure heart. Now, who is that? That's Jesus. That psalm is about a king who's going to come. That psalm is about the the one and only person who can ascend the hill of the Lord, and with everything he accomplished here on this earth, he can ascend to the holy place with clean hands and a pure heart. Don't think that's you, that's Jesus. But if you go to Jesus, and you know Jesus in the way I'm about to say, you too will experience that. The first thing we do when we come to Jesus is we just admit to him how unpure we are and how mixed we are. Do you do that in your prayer life? Do you believe the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God? Or do you think like, oh yeah, I need to have a pure heart and I got that, so I'm going to see God. No, 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 no. Go back to beatitude number one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They know how poor they are and empty. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So acknowledge that you're divided in your nature and in your desires. And then do this. Look to Jesus and what he's done. And take a a long, long, long look at Jesus. Longer than the look you took at yourself and your sin. Look to him for a long time and pray, Oh, Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. And pray that in faith. God hears the prayer of faith. He really does. And then just receive his comfort. Blessed are the poor in spirit, but blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Have you ever mourned over your sin? Receive his love and his forgiveness and and his comfort in the midst of our brokenness and our impurity because he is the one who is pure. He is the one and only Jesus with an undivided heart who did everything that his father asked from the inside and the outside all the way through. He did his will. Jesus is pure, and he came to this earth to offer himself up for the unpure, the impure. He died for our impurity. He bore our iniquities. Ask him to forgive you through his purity. And by the way, this isn't some sort of once, one-time conversation. This is just kind of, this is just daily Christian life. 
going to God, confessing our sins, relating to him as we really are and to him as he really is in Jesus, and finding that grace and tasting how good the Lord is again and in a new way. And then pray this prayer of the psalmist. Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. Just start praying that prayer of the psalmist and ask God out of that. So when you think about it, the only way to get a pure heart is what? It's to see how unpure your own heart is and my heart is. The only way to get an undivided heart is to realize that the heart is often divided, okay, And just pray, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Only people who know their heart is not pure pray that prayer. Be that person who prays that prayer in great need. I can't purify my heart, but just to pray that, you begin to move away from self and sort of self-made righteousness, which can at times be so hollow, and you are already moving towards the Lord Jesus who has a pure heart. Being in that grace relationship, um, we will see God one day, and we will live because Jesus lives, and I'm with him. (laughs) I'm united to Christ. And being united to Christ, that wholeness of the heart is found in my Savior. We will see him, and in seeing him, we will be like him. One of my favorite verses from 1 John 3, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. But dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been completely made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we're going to see him as he is. So you see, it's not going to kill us, okay? In fact, the moment of seeing Jesus is actually a transformative moment where to see him is to be like him, okay? And that righteousness that's credited to our account in this earthly life, you see, is going to be a righteousness that he imparts. We shall be like him with undivided hearts, pure hearts, when we are with him in heaven. In the meantime, in the meantime, think of these words of Paul from 2 Corinthians 3.18, and with this I close. Uh, The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, with un, who with unveiled faces all behold the Lord's glory, which is in his word, in his gospel, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, incremental glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we, your word humbles us. Um, it is like a mirror, uh, and it cuts like a sword, and it shows us for who we are. 
Lord, may, may you humble us in ways that cause us um, to run to you, to your mercy seat, to your feet, and find in you the grace and the love that you wrought on for us on Calvary, the forgiveness of our, of our sins, the resurrection of our bodies, and the life everlasting. Pray that you, we would be your people this week. We pray that you would unite our heart, each one of us, to fear your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.